Hey there, this is April with Myonomics, and we are breaking down the strategies on how to sell on Amazon. On our team, we have seven-figure Amazon sellers with years of experience selling, advertising, and even exiting. On Myonomics, we cover all the angles to help you sell and scale on Amazon. So let's get into it. I'm very excited to host the Amazon Product Success webinar today. We have a great group of people with us. My name is Andrew Laird, and I run the customer success and account management teams at Mayan. I've been a Amazon seller for the past seven years or so, since 2016. And I've launched probably 50 different products on Amazon for both myself and the Mayan customers over the past 12 months. But today, we are going to go through a step-by-step guide to sourcing, launching, and protecting your products on Amazon. So today we have Rich Goldstein with us. Rich, do you want to give a quick intro? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much. So I've been a a patent attorney for the past 29 years now, and I've been working with entrepreneurs my entire career. The last five years or so, I've been working with a lot of Amazon sellers, a lot of e-commerce brands to help them to protect their products and protect their brands online. And I'm happy to be here to, to share some of my insights about IP and how that can help your Amazon business. I appreciate it. And unfortunately, Edgar is not with us today. But fortunately, we have the more important partner with us, Wassam. So I'll let you give a quick introduction as well. Absolutely. Thank you. So good morning, good afternoon, good evening, where you're joining from. So my name is Wassam. I'm one of the co-founders of the Source Squad. We're a sourcing company that's based in Southern California. We have a network of uh, factories worldwide. Our business partners are a combination of seven and eight-figure sellers on Amazon, Walmart, Etsy, and Shopify. So again, really excited to be on here and hopefully add a little bit of value. Great. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really excited about what we have to talk about. But first, let's just talk a little bit about the platform. For those of you who are, you know, maybe this is your first webinar with Mayan. We have been using a different platform for the past few months. So in this question section, you can ask a question to the panelists at any time. We're going to reserve answering questions till the end. So please stick around and we'll we'll get to that when we can towards the end of the webinar. We also have a chat where you can talk with each other or just, you know, tell us about yourselves. You could try that right now. I know it looks like we already have a number of people already signed up. So just want to you know, say hello, let us know where you're from, maybe if you're selling on Amazon or what products you're interested in. We'd love to start seeing that. You can also answer a quick survey here. We also have the ability to book a call with one of our experts, our PPC experts at Mayan, if you want to get more information. You can also claim your free ad audit. So we, you know, our ad audits usually have a $1,000 price tag. So because you've joined the webinar today, this is a opportunity for you to to get that for free and otherwise you'll have speaker information below there so otherwise yeah let's let's see let's see where people are from who's joined us so far personally i am from the boston massachusetts area i recently just moved north of the city and i like i mentioned i've been selling on amazon for you know over seven years now i can't believe it's been that long i've watched the platform completely transform over that time and I've seen a lot of success for my business and also, you know, the hundreds of customers that Mayan is now working with. So otherwise, I want to talk a little bit about Mayan. We are the only PPC optimization platform 
that is built by MIT data scientists. Our three co-founders are all from MIT. We have an excellent development team and have been able to produce some really great software and products. We also have, you know, I know I'm a little biased, but one of the best customer success management teams out there. All of our account managers are either former Amazon sellers like myself or have worked in the Amazon ecosystem for more than five years, whether that's with an aggregator, whether that's in the buying and selling side of it. But uh, you won't find you know, better experts anywhere else. And it's really this combination of expertise and technology is what allows us to drive some of the results that we've been able to provide to our customers. We got our start out of Y Combinator. That was where we originally got funded. And I was actually the third employee at Mayan. And now we have over 42 and we're expected to hit more than 60 by the end of the year. So it's a really exciting time for us. And again, thank you for joining. So here's a little bit more about the, our, the speakers today. Uh, as I mentioned, Edgar won't be here and we've already given introductions. So with that, Sam, I'll turn it over to you. Okay, thank you so much. Can you hear me okay? Sounds great. Fantastic, all right, so let, let's get to it. Okay, so again, my name's Sam. I'm from the, uh, the Source Squad. You know, sourcing is, gosh, there's so many topics that we could be talking about. It's such a diverse topic, but because of the interest of time, there are gonna be a couple of key things that we're gonna be hitting on today. So the four areas that I really wanna spend time on today is defining product requirements, talking about margins and costs, finding the right sourcing agent. So not only how to find them, but making sure you're finding the right ones. And then we're gonna wrap up talking about quality control and verification, and we'll land the plane right there. All right, so let's, let's get to it. Before, into dive, before we dive into these topics, I think one of the key things that we really have to ask ourselves as sourcing agents, also as sellers, is branded versus non-branded. You know, when we're selling and we're working with new sellers or people that perhaps are more focused on arbitrage or wholesale in their journey, one of the key things that we tell them that they really need to ask themselves is, you know, are you trying to build a brand or are you going to be starting off working and selling me too products? And that fundamentally is going to shift and shape how you source and how you work with a sourcing agent. And that's simply because brands can command higher prices, right? If you're working with Me Too products or you're just trying to sell something that other competitors are selling, the value that you're adding mostly is going to be price, if not anything. And at that point, it becomes a race to the bottom, right? So brands can command higher prices. With a brand, you can create an experience, you can create an ecosystem, and at the same time, you can create uh, a loyal following. A really interesting example that I like to uh, provide is, if you think of the brand Anchor, which basically sells, I think, phone chargers for the most part, and they've got their, their majority line share of sales is on Amazon. They've built a brand over the last few years that has absolutely exploded, right? I know a lot of people go to Anchor and go to Amazon simply because of that brand. They know it's reliable. They know if they're traveling, that, that brand is going to do fantastic, right, quality-wise for them. And Anchor has capitalized on that. So not only now that they sell portable chargers, they also sell wall chargers. I believe they sell cables. So they've really been able to create an entire ecosystem and a customer experience. And maybe they're not even the cheapest, right? Perhaps they're a little bit more, right? But some people are willing to pay more for the overall experience and that ecosystem. Another example that again, you know, is one extreme, but I think a great example is Apple. Apple is absolutely both about the brand and about the ecosystem. If you take a look and think about the earpods, right? You know, before they created the earpods, there are multiple companies out there that were selling really good quality earpods, right? 
Is the Apple AirPod the best out there? Uh, it's debatable, but they're able to command a specific price point because it's all part of the ecosystem. I mean, I own one, right? And again, it's all about that brand experience. So it's a fundamental thing to be thinking about right off the bat. Are you building a brand or are you working on sort of a Me Too, you know, Me Too product? So I'm moving on. So once we've sort of defined that and figured that out, requirements is huge, folks. Requirements is absolutely critical, right? It's actually one of the most critical parts of your sourcing journey. It's going to determine your sourcing experience. I'll say that again. Defining your requirements well up front is going to determine your sourcing experience, right? It's like anything. Think of, you know, if you're building a home or if someone's building, say, a bridge, right? The specs are fundamental and key. And it's going to really determine sort of the end goal and how it happens, right? It's like anything else. Buildings, you know, computer apps, right? Like phone apps, you know, the end customer experience always has to be in mind initially as is being created, right? So requirements are fundamental, right? And the more clear you are off the bat, the easier it's going to be to be able to communicate with your sourcing person. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't work with your sourcing person for ideas, right? But fundamentally, you want to have the specifics nailed down and then collaborate with your sourcing person. Be like, hey, I need such and such and such. Do you have any tips? Do you have any ideas? Do you have any insider information? But the more you present and the more that you have sub solidity in what you want, the easier that experience is going to be, right? So if you get it right, and if you get your requirements right initially, it's going to save you time and money. The opposite is also true, right? It's going to hurt you if there's very, very fluid requirements right from the beginning, right? Now, requirements are going to really depend on the type of product, right? You might have products that require really detailed specs and some products that really don't, right? So not all products is created equal, right? It's going to depend on the type of product that you're creating, right? So you're going to have to sort of gauge that, right? And really think about it this way, right? You want to measure twice and cut once. That's ultimately why you want to have good specs and good requirements. And at the end of the day, your sourcing partner wants to help you, right? So help them help you. Now, let's talk a little bit about margins and costs, right? At the end, you know, understanding your supply chain is really going to help you optimize your products, how they get there, how they're made, and just really end-to-end -end allow you to see tweaks and opportunities for improvement and nail things down, right? You know, even if you're perhaps not the cheapest product, right, on the market, you still want to make sure that you're optimizing price and you're optimizing quality. That should always be a constant throughout your journey, whether it's on the same product or multiple products, you're always wanting to optimize, right? So how do you do that? I mean, you can do it through the product itself. You can actually even do it through the packaging. You can even do it through the shipping experience, right? From a packaging perspective, we've had a lot of customers that have come to us and said, hey, how do we optimize the packaging so perhaps, you know, the, the Amazon fees are less or I can fit more in a container? I mean, that's a, that's a quality experience, also in a cost experience that can improve. When you think about the actual product itself, we like to say, think of it in sort of a 3D type of model. So if I give you a bag as an example, a bag is not just one big clunk of material, right? It's multiple parts. You've got the base, you've got the straps, you've got the zip, right? How can you improve the quality on the zipper, the zipper quality? Are there other materials that can use that can save you a little bit of you know, cost, right? Or, or, or better material. The handles themselves, something that's perhaps a little more reinforced, other material, right? So the better you reconstruct or deconstruct your product, you can really see how you can basically kind of modify things and, and optimize things. 
And then lastly, really be intimate with the type of material that you're using, right? So we've got customers that say, hey, we want bath towels. It has to be this density. It has to be this absorbing. But how about, you know, Egyptian cotton versus Turkish cotton? Do you know the difference? Does the difference matter, right? So really getting that understanding is, is fundamental. So, I mean, check out this kid, right? I mean, this kid means business, but he really says it well, right? Negotiate from a strong position of knowledge, right? The more you understand about your product, the better the conversation is going to be, right? Again, your sourcing partner wants to help you, right? Ultimately, the more you know what you want, the easier the conversation is going to be and more fine-tuned the conversation is going to be, right? So just fine-tune the conversation, and, I mean, one thing I'll mention, folks, is most sellers don't want to go into this detail, but that's the cheat code, right? You want to know the details to be able to have that upper hand, to have a conversation that perhaps is higher than the rest, to really be able to fine-tune exactly what you need and making sure that your sourcing partner can help you through the way. So little Timmy gets it, and I hope, hope we do too, right? So moving on to finding the right sourcing agent. So think of this slide in sort of two parts, right? The, the top part of the slide talks about, you know, where to find people like us. And the bottom is, how do you make sure that it's the right sourcing partner for you, right? So, you know, you can find sourcing people, obviously, like platforms, online platforms like Alibaba and so on. We, we know those platforms. But trade shows is another great one where they have, you know, booths and whatnot. But our experience has been, you know, referrals and in-person networks are the best best way to do it. And the reason being is because, and again, we'll, we'll give you us as an example, a lot of the stuff that we do is, is purely from referrals. Why? Because we're in the community, right? We've, we've got people that work with us and we work with other people, right? So we would recommend, whether it's us or whomever else it is, working with people that have worked with sourcing agents that have a reliable track record you can double check and verify, right? That would be, I think, the way that we would, we would recommend. So once you've identified a few, Go ahead, give them a call, ask for references, and go into the details. Hey, this is the project that we need. Your sourcing partner knows that not all products are the same, right? So just kind of figure out and figure out, you know, how they can help you and what the pricing is and so on and so forth. The next part to this is how do you make sure that once you've identified one or two folks, that they are the right partner for you? The best way that we can recommend is evaluating the communication and the responsiveness, right? So... I'd like to say it this way, right? You know, people not in their best, but at their worst, right? When things go bad, right? How do they handle, right? How do they handle it? Are they able to be responsive, right? Are they able to kind of walk you through the situation? If you're, you know, needing timely updates, are they able to reciprocate, right? So again, everyone's well-intentioned, but sometimes how things are communicated are a leading indicator on how your experience is gonna be. So double-click that, make sure you go into the details, and just monitor performance, right? So let's say that you've got a long relationship with someone, that relationship is continuing to be built out, right? You want to make sure that you're giving feedback to your to your sourcing person, right? Making sure that you know you're building a long-term relationship through two-way collaboration. So moving yeah. on. Yeah, uh, real quick, I just want to mention that this is a live webinar. We had somebody ask a question about it. So here's your proof. We are live for you right now. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, we're live. All righty. Okay. So, so moving on in the interest of time. So what your sourcing partner says and how they say it leaves clues. So dig deeper, 
don't overlook things. You've got to remember, most mistakes are not intentional. Things can go sideways sometimes with the best of intentions, right? If you're working with sourcing companies that are outside the United States, sort of internationally, remember you're working with different cultures, right? Different cultures sometimes may not be open to communicating issues as, as much as we are, right? Sometimes they, you know, there's a little bit of fear, apprehension, right? So the more questions you ask, the better you're able to gauge kind of where things are going and how they're headed, right? You definitely don't want to be like Mr. Dogman here, right? What's happening with him, right? It's got flames going on. So if flames are hitting the back of your neck. No, it's not fine. There's probably a fire, right? This fella here, it's too late. His home's already in flames. It's probably going to get his hat next. He's in trouble, right? So he's going to make a move, right? Don't be like Mr. I'm, I'm sure he'll be fine, right? But ultimately what you want to do is you want to basically play back the conversations that you're having. So follow up with an email, you know, make sure that, you know, hey, we talked about this. We talked about that. You said you're going to do this. Again, have a nice little audit trail something that you can both point to at any given point. We're getting, we're getting closer, folks. So thanks. Again, again, if you're getting value, give me a thumbs up. Just make sure that your folks are still awake. Love it. Awesome. Yeah. Fantastic, right? <laughs> Love it. All right. So quality, product quality verification, right? There are a couple of slides on here. We're going to wrap this up. And the reason why we've got a couple of slides is this is really, really, really critical, right? You want to make sure that you're protecting yourself and protecting your product, right? Having a checklist absolutely fundamental. I mean, you can go online, you can search product verification checklists, you can find templates, or you can work with your sourcing partner and be like, hey, do you have example templates that we can kind of work off of? So you really want to make sure that you have something that's documented and clear as to what your specifications are, right? Also, once you kick off a project with your sourcing partner, you want to make sure that you get a sample, right? Make sure that, hey, here's the specs, you're getting a sample, you're verifying it. If things aren't quite right, get a second sample. It's okay. Once you go into production and you're happy with the samples, make sure you do a final check before shipment, right? You want to make sure there's a 100% match between both of those two items and always provide feedback, right, to your sourcing partner. It's going to take a little bit of effort on your end, but the more feedback you provide, the easier and seamless your end results is going to be. Yeah. I made this mistake of not doing a final check before and paid oh, your yeah. so, so real quick, yeah. So, I mean, yeah. you know, for, yeah, I mean, Yes, I would absolutely say, and actually this is on this, this, this next slide here, you know, pre-shipment inspection is a must. And I've absolutely. seen situations where people just want to skimp out on it because they don't want to pay the inspection fee or they're running out of time. Don't do it. It's going to cost you one way or another. It's going to cost you time or it's going to cost you somehow, right? So I would just say plan, right? Sometimes even plan to fail. And if you don't uh, plan to fail, you're going to fail, right? So ultimately make sure that you, when, when you're, you're creating your timeline, Buffer in some time for a inspection, right? It's going to really, really help you out. And again, you're looking for the sample and the end product to be 100% match. The one thing that I'll also really strongly recommend is, let's say you're working with your sourcing partner on a t-shirt. And let's say the stitching isn't quite right, or there's something off with the color. Don't agree to fix it in production, right? Kindly request a follow-up sample. Now, again, that's not because anyone's trying to pull a fast one on you. It's just ultimately you just want to make sure that your end result is what you expect it to be, right? Now, sometimes you don't have to wait completely for that thing to come from another country. Maybe a high-quality video or picture is enough to verify that what you have is, is, is the final product. Again, not all situations or circumstances are the same. Use caution, right, and use your best judgment. But those are some tips and tricks. Use sort of common sense and kind of figure out if it's something very minor that you think a, a – 
I video it, can catch it, awesome. If you're like, you know, you know what, I'd really feel comfortable with a second sample, you know, go ahead, be assertive, and, and state that. Yeah. Looks like Kevin, you know, one of our listeners, Kevin, uh, had some, some issues with this in the past. He said he, he wished he had hired a sourcing company. <laughs> so maybe uh, you guys yeah, yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll, have, we'll have some contact information at the end. But I mean, absolutely. And I think that's sort of the, you know, what we recommend is really sort of depending on this, the, your detailed needs. Sometimes it's best to work with someone that can sit down, you know, have a conversation with you, truly understand your end result, go through the details as opposed to sort of just, you know, frantically doing stuff, you know, online. So it, it, it certainly does have its advantages without a doubt, right? You know, as, as we quickly finish up here in terms of inspection reports, absolutely critical, right? We, we talked about that. Now, you, you've got to remember you're hiring a company to do the inspection for you, right? That inspection company wants to do a good job, right? They want to retain your services in the future. So sometimes those reports could be perceived as a little harsh, like they really, you know, they go in, they're all in, right? So I think to balance things out, you want to use the AQL accepted quality levels as kind of a guide in terms of X percent, uh, you know, minor, X percent major issues and X percent critical. I just want to state that this is a guide, right? Not all products are equal. So for example, if you have a set of pet products, they'll pick on pet products, right? The type of quality, right, is probably going to be, there's a little bit of leniency compared to say electronics, right? For example, I mean, if you're building a plane, two and a half percent defects isn't going to cut it, right? You don't want to land with the wheels wobbly, right? That's not going to be a thing, right? You want to make sure that you sort of exercise caution and you use some sort of frame of reference. At the end of the day, you want to sit down and, and clearly communicate those expectations with your sourcing partner. And again, have it be sort of a, a, a two-way street in terms of the conversation. In terms of, you know, rough ETE timeline, and this will be the final slide, folks. And thank you for your patience. You know, what does it really take, right, to take something from, you know, the, the point where you talk to a sourcing person to the time it actually, you know, hits Amazon, right? This is a rough timeline. Now, again, if you've got sort of a seamless experience where, you know, things are sort of firing all cylinders, this timeline may be a little inflated, right? But this is really to kind of give you engage to see whether or not you're in the ballpark. If it's double this, then something's going, something's going horribly wrong. It could be plus or minus a couple of weeks. But typically, you know, when you work with a sourcing person, let's say it's a brand new product, a brand new relationship, I would give it two to four weeks, depending on the complexity of the product. Sometimes it could be a week if you know exactly what you want and just all you need is a quote. One week is good enough. Sometimes two weeks if they really need to nail things down. If you're a company or a person that's an active product development, it could take a little bit more. The actual sample itself will take about two weeks to actually make. If you're shipping stuff from China or somewhere in Asia, about one and a half weeks is, you know, I think what we've, you know, traditionally seen. If it's near shore, it could be a little sooner, right? But that's about the, the duration. Manufacturing is about 30 to 40 days, sort of depending on whether or not it's a net new product, if there are other, you know, materials that have to be sort of sourced from other areas. But that's a nice little ballpark. And 35 to 40 days for shipment. There's five days in there in terms of it hitting sort of, you know, ports and then going to FBA. There's about a week there. You know, we've seen, you know, 35 to 40 days as sort of a good timeline to plan for. If it comes sooner, awesome, bonus. But I would say, I would say budget for that. That's yeah. typically the shipment from China. If you're doing nearshore, it's dramatically less. And we've seen a lot of people sort of inquire about nearshore options. But again, from China or Asia, it's about that duration. During 2021, I had shipments take more than 60 days. So luckily, oh, yeah, oh, 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and we've seen sort of, you know, last year, you know, they make it to say the Port of LA and then they sit there for weeks and weeks, right? So thank God that's not an issue anymore. And again, you know, as of right now, we're, we're seeing things move about within five days from, you know, the port to actual, you know, being checked yeah. into FBI. Yeah, so that's, that's a great news, right? So I think we've wrapped up right on time. So again, my name is Wassam from the Source Squad. If you think that we can help you, we'd like to have a chat, you have some products that you're looking to explore, please reach out to us. We'd love to say hello. We'd love to see how we can help you. It's a free conversation. You can email us at uh, support at the sourcequad.com. Reach out to us at the sourcequad.com. There's a form. Again, just reach out, say hello, see how we can help you. And we'd love to you know, uh, chat. Thanks, everyone. I hope you had a little bit of fun yeah. as much as I did. And I hope you had a little bit of value. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, that was very informative. Really appreciate you being here. And up next, we have uh, Rich Goldstein. Take it away. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. And th that was really great. I, I love the way that you broke down th this whole sourcing process. Extremely comprehensive. And so next, we're going to talk about protecting your products on Amazon. So the, there's, and there's a couple of reasons why we do that. And, and I'll jump into that in a moment. First, a little bit about my background here. Let me see if I got the advance here. So I've been a patent attorney for a long time, over 2,000 patents issued to my clients. And I wrote the book for the American Bar Association. Basically, that explains to entrepreneurs how patents work called the ABA Consumer Guide to Obtaining a Patent, which was really awesome because I think that IP is one of the most valuable things to small businesses, including Amazon sellers, that they know the least about. And I feel that learning a little bit about IP goes a long way in helping you create business value. And so in general, IP means intellectual property, and it's the field of the law that deals with the protection of new ideas. So you've got these three main areas up top here, patent, trademark, copyright. And that's how we protect our products and apps, our branding, and our valuable content. And more specifically, when you're talking about a product and you're talking about what makes a product different, then you're talking about a patent. If we're dealing with branding, the things that consumers use to identify the product in the marketplace, when they see it, they think of you, then that's what a trademark is for. And lastly, content. Content is protected by copyright. So that helps to dispel some of the confusion that people often have. And they'll say, well, that's a great name for a product. You should patent it. And that's just incorrect. And, and now you can see why. It's just that there needs to be a match between the subject matter and the type of protection. And so when is IP important to your business? First, regarding that, let me ask you, what's the purpose of your business? Like, what is the reason for any business? In general, it's to create value. So your business is in existence to create value, or you might say to generate a profit. But there's two ways that a business can create value. One is by the thing that you do when you're really deep into the, the nuts and bolts of your Amazon business is you're selling products at a profit. You're seeking to buy products sell them for more than what you purchase them for. And after all the is said and done with all the fees that are deducted, you want to make a profit. And that's one way that you can create value with your Amazon business. But the other way is by creating value in the business itself. In other words, creating a business that's, uh, if you can sell that business, you've created value in the business. And I mean, it, it feels like in the past couple of years, just about everyone I know 
has, you know, they might have been selling on Amazon for just a few years and then they um, were handed a seven figure check to buy their business. So there's something to that aspect of it, of creating value in the business itself. And you know, people that I know that are involved in selling business, like Scott Dietz said recently that 70% of the value that most sellers get is at exit. It's when they sell their business, not from the profit that they collect while they're running their business. Very interesting. So, you know, that being said, in, in most businesses, um, in most Amazon businesses, where's the value? Is it tangible or intangible? Now, you know, tangible assets are things like um, real estate or inventory uh, or, um, you know, factories. Generally, that, you know, that's what tangible is. And intangible are things like IP, things that, that you own that aren't necessarily tangible but can have quite a bit of value, which we'll take a look at. Because in general, if you look at it historically, there's been a huge shift over the last 50 years, where it used to be that the biggest companies in the world, like the IBMs, ExxonMobil's, Procter & Gamble's of the world, uh, very little of their value, this little blue sliver here, was intangible value, like IP. And they owned you know, trucks and ships, like ExxonMobil had huge uh, ocean-going vessels for transporting their oil. And they had real estate, gas stations, Procter & Gamble, same thing, shipping, ports, factories. Um, but over the past uh, five decades, it shifted a lot. And now the most valuable companies in the world, companies like Alphabet or Apple, Amazon, Facebook and Microsoft, the bulk of their value is now intangible. It's, it's like the value of their team, which they call human capital, the value of their customer relationships called customer capital, and also structural capital, which are the systems that you've created in your business that are reliable and transferable. So if someone came along and bought your business, they would be able to capitalize on the team you've put together, on the structures you've put together. It's not just know-how you have in your head. You've transferred that into your business. Um, those intangible aspects of your business could be hugely more valuable than the tangible parts of it. It could be five times more valuable than the tangible parts of it. And that's the part that I like to focus on. And again, this is a little zoomed out from what I do with IP, because IP is a little part of that intangible value. But in general, growing all of that could tremendously benefit. So how do you create the most of IP value? And this is interesting because people will say, well, what's the value of a patent? Or what's the value of a trademark? Really, the value comes when you create a valuable business, when the business itself has value when you're selling products at a profit. So if you've got a product and you've got a million in EBITDA, meaning that you've got a million dollars in profit per year coming from the, from the, the product, when you're going to sell that, that business, then having the IP will multiply the value at exit. Because if that IP helps to make it so that, say, someone buying your company will be able to keep other companies at bay, keep other companies from capitalizing on the market, then that makes your company that much more valuable. And this is something to consider here now, is like a lot of times when people look at IP, they look at the value in the moment. They're like, well, am I going to be able to stop my competitors from ripping me off? And so like, how much is that going to cost me 
if my competitors rip off my product, rip off my listing, uh, and make a similar product. And that's how they evaluate whether it's worth doing a patent, for example. But in truth, the, the greatest amount of value they'll get out of the patent is when they sell the business. There will always be an ROI. If you can create a business that's profitable, having the, the IP will multiply the value. So if, for example, you're going to be paid a four-time multiple on, uh, on the profit. So you have a million dollars in profit. You're going to be paid $4 million based upon having that profitable listing. If you've got good IP that keeps people from making a similar product, instead of a four multiple, you might get a six multiple. And a six multiple means an extra, that means an extra $2 million, six million instead of four million. So um, that could be a tremendous ROI. I mean, imagine you spent you know, $20,000 on getting that IP and you're getting $2 million more. That's a hundred time ROI and the money you spent on IP. So that's where you can create the most value, profitable business plus IP. Okay, so then why don't sellers invest in IP, especially when they start? And really the answer is quite simple, it's limited resources. So when you're starting out, when you're doing, when you have to do things like source new products, you, you have to source the products, you're going to need to spend money on advertising, on, on, on getting that initial order of inventory, you've got competition for your resources and a patent might seem like the least you wanna spend the money on. So typically it's limited resources. And so there are choices to be made by any entrepreneur at an early stage because of those scarce resources. And so it's important to find a way that IP can play a role in that, but you don't want to spend all your money on IP like some entrepreneurs do. They spend money on the patent and there's no money left over for sourcing the product, for ordering initial inventory, for promoting it. So you have to find that role of it. But if you look at bigger companies, companies that have significant resources, they do whatever IP they possibly could because they know that it's going to be an ROI in terms of the value of your company. So you need to, 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 to balance that. The scarcity of resources against something you know is going to be a valuable investment. Yeah. So Rich, quick yes. question for you, because um, I think that's an important point. Most of the time when you're just starting out on Amazon, you're probably not at the stage where you're looking to patent something right away, would you say? Because yeah. you want to you want to create something of value that's worth sort of protecting right. before you get to that stage. Would that be sort of a fair argument? Yeah, absolutely. That's that's the argument of like there are scarce resources and it's not always yeah. going to take the priority, certainly. Absolutely. But there are time limits to that and that you need to balance as well. We'll get to that in, in, a, in a moment. So, you know, and what keeps most sellers away from IP in general is, is intimidating because they don't understand it. So it's like they tend to avoid the IP issues until it becomes a problem simply because like it's they don't understand and they don't understand when it's um, important for them to look at. They don't understand when they might be infringing someone and, and how that could be. Um, and if, if you can't make a good assessment on that, they'll kind of say, well, we'll deal with this when this becomes a problem. And sometimes it can't be dealt with at that later point uh, effectively. So um, my solution is to learn as much as you can about IP because a little knowledge goes a long way in helping you make good decisions. 
doesn't mean you need to invest in IP, but knowing about IP knows when you should be concerned and maybe when you need to to invest further in that. And in general, what you're doing is you're balancing. There's a value. There's a value in the IP or there's a value in maybe even knowing if you're infringing. But you got to balance that with your the limited resources and limited information that you have. And so, you know, ultimately, you will often need to spend money to even get answers. And then the question is, how much value is at stake? So if, for example, you're wondering about, let's say you, you, you get shut down, someone else is saying that you're, you're infringing their patent, and you find that it's going to cost you a few thousand dollars to even determine if you are infringing, which, by the way, should be the first step if you are accused, is, is you got to find out if it's a real claim or not. But so if it's going to cost you a few thousand dollars and you've got a hundred thousand dollars in inventory, it's definitely worth it to spend those limited resources to get uh, to to enhance your information and know what to do next. But if it's a product, you've only got five thousand dollars worth of inventory, probably doesn't pay to spend three thousand dollars just to find out if you're infringing. You might just try and work it out best as you can. So it's always a matter of balancing those things, the value at stake against the the information you need and also in terms of the the limited resources you have and so you know once again a way to combat the limited information is just by learning more about ip will help you make some of your own decisions with having without having to pay to get a professional opinion for example okay so the now just a few points on on uh, the types of ip you can get so trademarks are how you protect your branding so trademarks can protect your company name, the product names, and also like you know um, symbols and slogans. So it's like the name Nike, the the swoosh that Nike uses, and the the slogan "Just Do It." Those are all trademarks of Nike, and those are ways in which they prevent customers from being confused. So if a customer were to use the swoosh on i'm not a customer i'm sorry if if a competitor were to use the swoosh on their product the the customers might be confused into thinking that they're affiliated with nike and so nike can prevent them from doing so through trademark law and so can you by protecting the things that matter to your brand and trademarks are relatively inexpensive but not having the trademark rights can kill an acquisition deal so considering that it costs a couple thousand dollars to get a trademark the right way, it's a no-brainer to get trademarks on your branding. And it will be a tremendous ROI when you get to, to sell your business. Yeah. Now, I just, yeah, I quickly like to add that, especially when you're first starting on Amazon, trademarks are incredibly important because it's the only way to get brand registered. You're eventually going to need a trademark in order to access all the benefits of brand registry on Amazon, which if you're creating a branded part product is it completely essential. So that was, that would be something I'd recommend to do immediately once you're, once you've launched or planning to launch on Amazon. Yep, absolutely. And, and then patents, what they protect are uh, physical products, chemical compositions, the appearance or design of a product. So basically when you've got um, something that's physical, um, it's typically going to be a, a patent that you'd use to protect it, and it also processes. So if you've got a software platform, a platform for managing pay-per-click, for example, that could possibly be protected 
as the series of steps that are involved in 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 that process and uh, in general there are two types of patents that you can create for your product so utility patent covers the functional structural aspects of it so if you think of an invention typically like where you're thinking of well how do i improve an existing product so an invention where you're making something better you're making a product better than what existed before then whatever is structurally different about it or functionally different about it to amount to that improved product, that's what a utility patent would be for. A design patent is just for the ornamental appearance of the product. So it's just for the way the product looks. That's become extremely important on Amazon because in general, utility patents, even though they're more about the concept or structure of a product, it's about words. It's about how a certain description of that product gets interpreted. Design patent, just about the look of the product. It's about the pictures. So it's very easy to get something shut down on Amazon when you have the design patent because all Amazon has to do is look at the pictures. They don't have to understand the words of the patent. So design patents have become extremely important on Amazon. And having a, a design patent for, for a product with a distinctive look is a bit of a no-brainer. Utility patents are much more expensive, and it's, it's more questionable about whether they're worthwhile, especially in an early stage. But those are the two types of patents. And the thing to consider, though, is that the timing is critical. Back to the, the scarcity of resources and like trying to maintain your resources question, very often people will say, and rightfully so, like, hey, Patents are expensive. Let's put it on the market. If things go well, then we'll come back around to get a patent later. Unfortunately, what they don't know is that if you make the product public, you put that listing live, immediately you lose the rights in much of the world to ever apply for a patent. And in the U.S., there's a one-year grace period. And so if you've let a year go by and you haven't yet applied for the patent, then it's just too late. And too many people come to me two years in, they're doing great with the product, and they say, we just need to patent this now. Money is no object, and I'd love to help them. But unfortunately, if two years have gone by, more than a year has gone by, it's too late to patent it in the U.S. And most people don't know that, and, and that's how they get stuck. By the way, with trademarks, there is no set time limit. It's not like if you're selling it for a year, you'll lose the rights to it. But if someone else files a trademark application before you, it becomes a much more complicated, much more expensive problem. So where technically you might be able to prevail by showing, it you, showing that you've been selling it for 10 years before this other person, but now it's a $50,000 trademark you know, cancellation proceeding as opposed to a $2,000 trademark application. So it pays to file at an earlier stage as you know that you have got a valuable brand. And, you know, in general, that's, that's it for kind of like what we are, what we're talking about. And by the way, just, I'm, I'm just going to quickly get to, there's a question asked on the Q&A about um, international, a couple of questions. I'm just going to address them super, super fast. Created an invention. How do I protect it from China and other manufacturing companies to copycat it? So first of all, you need to know is that patents and trademarks are territorial. They're jurisdictional. So a U.S. patent protects you against making, using, or selling in the U.S., but not in China. If you want to protect, prevent people from making it in China, you'd need a Chinese patent. But they still can't bring it into the U.S. if you have a U.S. patent. 
So essentially, if you think that China would also be a good market for selling the product, you'd want to get a product, the product patented in China. And then on a similar basis, so asking, also asking about trademarks internationally. Yes, trademarks are jurisdictional too. Uh, a U.S. trademark protects you in the U.S. If you're selling in the U.S. marketplace, it protects you in the U.S. If you want to um, sell in Europe, you'd want a European trademark. And by the way, one of the best reasons for getting trademarks, even in places where you aren't selling yet, is that's upside for someone who's going to acquire your brand. So when they look at it and they see that you that you have trademarks in all these places that they haven't started selling it, they say, well, that's great. He also has the, the trademarks in Japan and Europe. We could expand into that. It makes your brand so much more valuable than than whatever you spent on those international trademarks. So yeah, that's about what I could squeeze into 20 minutes here on, on patents and trademarks and protecting your brand on Amazon. If you'd like to see if there's something we can help you with, see if it's a match to work with us, you could schedule with Larry on my team. It's speaktolarry.com, and you can set up a call to find out how we can help. And, and so that's it for me. Well, thank you so much, Rich. I really enjoyed uh, the presentation. You know, a lot of that spoke to me because I've been there before. I've been, I've had an accepted patent. I've worked on multiple trademarks in the past, and um, it is very important to at least have a basic understanding of this if you want to be successful. And you know, like you said, have a successful exit, um, which is what you know a lot of us are looking forward to at, at some point down the road. So, really appreciate that. Thank you. My pleasure. All right. So the next and final section, I'll try to get through this in about 10 minutes or so. There is a lot of information, so get ready to take notes. This will be recorded and sent out afterwards if you miss anything. And I know we have a couple of questions as well, so we'll try to leave a little bit of time for that at the end. But anyways, this section is about how to advertise for your product launch on Amazon. And if you remember, I've you know, over the past 12 to 18 months or so, I've personally or helped customers launch um, about 50 products on Amazon with a pretty high success rate. You're never going to hit 100%. That's usually not possible. But if you do the right things and you have the right strategy in place, you can at least improve your chances of success and having a successful launch. And then, of course, eventually getting to profitability, which is what we all want to do. So I get the question a lot, do I need to advertise for my product launch? And the answer is yes, of course. Unless you're Elon Musk, you have to do some form of advertising because nobody knows who you are and nobody knows what your product is. And there is a lot of competition on Amazon. So this is very important, specifically on Amazon, but we're going to talk about off Amazon strategies as well. So I first want to talk about structure. There are three different types of ads you can create on Amazon. There's sponsored product, sponsored brand, and sponsored display. Let's start with sponsored product because that is what you should utilize the most. That should be about 85 to 90% of your ad spend, especially during your product launch. And this is very important because when we set up sponsored product advertisements for launch, we create what we call the full structure. And that is six different types of sponsored products that you sponsored product ads that you would set up for every product you are launching. It's also important from a you know, from a structural side, to only have one product and a small group of targets within each campaign you set up. So those six campaigns that we set up for sponsored product ads are broad match, phrase match, exact, ASIN, 
category and auto campaigns. You should set those all up separately and make sure that again, there's only one product or one group, you know, product group, which is essentially the difference between having, you know, if, it, if it's in a separate listing on Amazon, then it should be in a separate ad. If you have one listing with maybe just slightly different colors or different sizes, then it's generally okay to have that group of products in the same sponsored product ad. Anyways, I want to talk first about exact because you need to figure out your keywords. And the best way to do that is to make a list of 10 to 20, 10 to 20 keywords. I like to use you know, products like Helium 10 or Jungle Scout, or if you're already an Amazon seller, you can use brand analytics to get very accurate search volume data for all these keywords. So essentially, how many people are searching each of these keywords on a monthly basis? The higher the search volume, the better. You know, usually what I try to do is identify the top 10 to 20 keywords that are have the highest relevancy to my product and the highest search volume within that category. So once I have that, that group of you know 10 to 20 keywords that I really want to focus on, I want to make sure I rank for during my product launch, then you create your exact campaigns and use the same keywords in the phrase campaigns as well, because those will pick up things like maybe it's a plural word instead of singular or just a couple other words um, that might be contained you know, within that keyword that will make sense for your brand. What's important for your broad-based keywords is to not use those long-tailed keywords. When you're, when you're creating your broad-focused campaigns, you should use shorter, more concise keywords. You know, just a quick example, if you're selling a uh, beach chair, for example, you don't want to put beach chair for sun tanning in your broad keyword match because Amazon will latch onto any of those words and they might start advertising your product for suntan lotion or something you know, just completely irrelevant. So you wanna keep it concise. Um, another trick within broad-based targeting is if you put a plus sign uh, in front of any word that's in your broad-based keyword, Amazon will make sure that that, key, that single word is included in the search. So if you have beach chair and you have a plus in front of the chair, it's gonna make sure that chair shows up in all of the customer search terms from what those ads are applied to. So we talked about, you know, the broad, the phrase, and the exact campaigns that we set up and how you need to do keyword research and find the highest volume keywords that are highly relevant to your product. So next, I want to talk about ASIN targeting, category targeting, and auto targeting. For your ASIN targeting, and this is, again, where you'll show up on other people's listings, on their product detail page, it's a great placement for a new product because it's usually a little bit less expensive than your keyword focused targeting. And you can also pick specific products of who your competitors are, who you want to go after, who you want to take market share from. You can show up directly on their product detail page. So what I usually do is, you know, find your most relevant keyword, do a search on Amazon, then pull in the first, the entire first page of ASINs and target all of those for this campaign. It's a really good strategy and make sure that you're going to target products that are highly viewed. So there's going to be a, you know, a large number of placement where you can show up and it also will improve your ranking down the road. If you do this correctly, um, next is setting up your category targeted campaigns. So this is important 
you know, first of all, make sure to find the right category. I'm sure you've done that already as you're you know, figuring out when you're launching your product. And as you're creating your product listing, you also need to choose a category. But just make sure it's a highly relevant category to your product, obviously. What I like to do for the category campaigns is there is an option to click refine. And then you can set parameters for the products you want to target in terms of their price point or reviews. So what I usually do is when I'm, when I'm targeting a category, refine it for price to you know, test it out. I like to test out advertising on products that are more expensive than mine. You know, you're offering some value there by providing a potentially less expensive and hopefully similar or potentially even better quality products. So that tends to work pretty well. The second point is to refine by the number of reviews. If you're only advertising to products that have four-star reviews or lower, you automatically have you know, some type of benefit over them. You know, obviously you're not going to have reviews on day one, but I'll get to that in a second. So that's, you know, that covers the basic structure, you know, for sponsored brand, I honestly don't recommend that right out of the gate, unless you have a really good video because sponsored brand video is excellent placement. It's about halfway down the page on page one, but you do need to have good creative. And if you haven't invested in creating a good video, it's usually not worth it until your creative is up to par because I've seen it work really well if you've if you've done your homework and have created a great video that really explains you know your product and shows the consumer how they can use it in their daily life but if you don't do a good job of that and you're just using you know photos with text over it that kind of fade in and out you're probably not going to have great results there so last piece is sponsored display there are three subsets of sponsored display that I set up for all of our customers. The first is cross-promotion campaigns. So if you're launching a new product, you probably don't have other products to cross-promote. But if you do, this is a very valuable strategy, especially if they all have the same brand name. One, it helps keep competitors off your product detail page. So instead of seeing a competitor right below your Add to Cart button or below your five bullet points, they're going to see another one of your products. And then they're like, okay, this is an established brand. I've seen their brand name a few different times. And you, you sort of trust them if you, if you see a brand name over and over again on Amazon. So that's a really important point. The other is you can do the same type of ASIN targeting with sponsored display. I would recommend setting that up right out of the gate for your product launch. And the last piece is either views or purchase remarketing for sponsored display. Sponsored display is the only place on Amazon where you can remarket to customers who have been to your product page before. And obviously, for your product launch, you're probably not going to have that many. But it is very valuable to set that up and just let it run, consistently let that run over time because people are going to you know, search lots of different options on Amazon. And at the end of the day, they might forget, they might get confused, but if you can continually hit them with ads, they are going to start to recognize your brand name and be more likely to check out in the futures. So the next piece is talking about budgets and expected returns. I see a lot of people make the mistake of putting a budget of $2 or $5 per campaign. That's a problem for a couple of reasons. First is that you're likely going to run out of budget very early in the day. I see this happen all the time where if you have $5, $10 campaign budget, your budget might be eaten up before 6 a.m. in the morning. And that means you're really not advertising throughout the day for your product. 
So I usually recommend a budget between $25 and $100 for any campaign you're setting up. Even if you, you, know, you don't necessarily expect to spend all that budget, you should really control the spend of your budget by the bids. You know, what you're willing to pay per click is how you control how much you're going to spend per day. But having a high budget in there, just make sure that one, you're telling Amazon that you know, you're willing to invest in this product if you have a higher budget in there. And two, you're not going to run out of budget throughout the day and your ads won't be paused, you know, halfway through the day. And you miss that, you know, peak search and buying sort of period, which happens in the early to late afternoons. So now getting into expected returns, it is important to understand that you are investing in your product. Most of the time we see a ROAS between a one and a two within your first month of advertising. Honestly, a ROAS above a one is usually a good result. And ROAS stands for return on ad spend. So however many dollars you're putting in, what you're getting out of it from product sales. So, you know, you're not break even with a ROAS of a one. You have to consider your product costs, your referral fees, your Amazon fees, all of that. So it is important. You, know, you obviously want to get to profitability down the road. But in month one, nobody knows who you are and you're going to have very few reviews. So you're going to have to pay a little bit more to start getting traction. And that brings me to uh, the honeymoon period, which there's a bit of a debate whether this is still applicable or still a thing on Amazon. I most recently you know, helped a customer launch. I won't get into details about the product, um, but I helped them launch a product. And for their top keyword that we were looking for, which was the highest search volume keyword in their category, we were able to get them to page one within two weeks from a strategy that included one, building out all of the advertising campaigns, and two, using the search find buy to purchase that product just a handful of times. And that's really all it takes within your first month of launching to get to page one is getting either yourself, friends and family to look at that specific keyword you're going after, search it on Amazon, find that product and buy it. Think about it as training the Amazon algorithm to understand that this keyword should be associated with your product and in turn, that is going to improve your organic ranking and hopefully get you on page one in a short period of time. So next, I want to talk about reviews. And I know we're running a little short on time, so I'll try to keep this quick. But if you are not using Amazon Vine, you should be. There is absolutely no reason you should avoid using this. It is the only way to get compliant reviews for your product on Amazon in the shortest amount of time during a product launch. I set up Vine the second your product is available on Amazon, you should have enrolled in the program. I know some people are sometimes a little bit afraid saying, I don't know if the reviews are going to be good. It costs between $100 to $200, depending on the promotion that Amazon is doing. But honestly, that is a very low price to pay to potentially get 30 genuine reviews on your product. And a lot of times, you know, these are all written reviews where people have taken the time to really you use your product, they're most of the time going to explain it very fairly. And from our experience, we've seen it, the average review rating is about a 4.4 after using Vine. Again, this is a small sample size, but it's very rare to see the aggregate reviews come in below 4.3 or 4.2. And honestly, if they do come in that low, there's probably some an issue with your product that, you know, Hopefully, you know, to Wassam's to point, should have been caught, you know, when you're doing your final checks and your inspections. That's why that stage is incredibly important as well. Anyways, 
there's one Vine hack that I'd like to share with you that I've seen work really well. And that is, you know, let's say you're launching three different colors of the same product. You can initially have all of those in separate listings and you can enroll all three of those. Let's say you're doing yeah, three, three different colors. You can enroll all three of those into the Vine program and you know start to collect reviews you can collect 30 reviews for each of those products then once the divine program is over merge those together and within one month you can have 90 reviews on a newly launched product which is incredibly hard to do we see review rates below about one percent honestly it's probably about half a percent sometimes even less depending on the product so getting reviews is hard and getting good reviews is harder so you utilize vine it is very important my last piece of advice is to utilize some type of off Amazon traffic for your product launch. Google PPC is the easiest to set up because a lot of times there's a lot of overlap between the top keywords you're going after. Also, if you've never set up a Google PPC account, you can get a $500 credit for, you know, for your spending. You have to spend $500 to get that, but that means you know, I usually recommend about 300 to 500 and spend on Google PPC per month. And that means if you get that credit, you can have free month of advertising with Google, which is excellent. We already talked about the search find buy to help train the Amazon algorithm. And otherwise, you know, if you're, if you're, especially if you're creating a new product and you've, you know, thought about your patent protection, you've done your trademark, you've already invested into this. You should be investing in some type of influencer marketing for your launch. You want to make a big splash as you know as your product is just getting revealed to the world for the first time. And the best way to do that is obviously you have your Google, you have your Amazon advertising, but if you can find influencers, and, and I found that YouTube, TikTok, uh, Instagram a little less so now, but YouTube and TikTok are great platforms for that. And honestly, if you if you get lucky and and have a video go viral, that is going to be the best possible thing you can do for your for your launch. So we do have that. So that's the end of my section. I apologize. That was a little quick. We it looks like we have a couple questions in here as well. So we will get to that. Now let's open it up to questions. I think we have a few in here already. Let me see. Okay, so here's a question for you, Wasam. Um, this is from Lakesh. He says, how important are PO contract terms when working with factories in India, China, or other countries? I think actually Rich, Rich might be a great person, though. <laughs> yes. I, I have no idea. I don't deal with contracts at all. One thing I will tell you is that I mean, it's, it's really important, no matter where they are in the world, to to set clear terms, right? But I mean, if they're not in the United States, I mean, how enforceable are they? It's questionable. I mean, that's again why we recommend, if it's possible, to work with someone that's local, that's locally enforceable, that you can have basically conversations locally. So no matter what it is, we still strongly recommend that you do have things sort of spelt out very clearly because if you do run into any issues and say, for example, there are competing people here in the United States, at least you can, you know, target that here on yeah, within the United States. So again, I'm not an attorney, but we would definitely recommend one way or another to set things very clearly, set terms very clearly. You know, if, if you've vetted them and you've vetted the company and they're reparable and they want to do a good job and they want to build a relationship, always put terms clearly so you can have a reference point, you know, as the relationship grows. So definitely do that. Yeah, that part I, I 
absolutely could agree with. I don't know the specifics of that type of relationship, but in general, contracts help to define the relationship. They're not just about deciding if you can sue someone for violating it. It's it's like it's like you said, a reference point where you look back and say, yeah, this is what we agree to. Now, now we each know what we're what the expectations are. So it's a great way to set the expectations and to stay on the same page about that. Great. Yeah, thank you, Rich. There's one more question for you. If we if we got the utility patent in the United States and a PCT and then start selling on Amazon and someone in Europe starts selling it, am I able to sue them or do I have to wait until I get one for Europe? Or I'm assuming they're talking about getting the PCT accepted in Europe. Yes. So in general, so the rule is that you need to have the patent, not just be pending to be able to enforce it anywhere. So, you know, when you apply for a patent, it's patent pending, you can't enforce it against them. You can't stop anyone from making, using or selling it until the patent's approved, which makes a lot of sense because just because you're asking for a patent doesn't mean you're entitled to it. So now going to your specific situation. So you filed in the U.S., and then you filed a PCT application, which is stands for Patent Cooperation Treaty. It's basically a mechanism that buys you additional time to file in other countries. So you filed your PCT, it bought you additional time where you now can file in Europe. You can file a European Union patent application, for example. Then that will have to be examined over the next several years to determine if you're entitled to a European patent. So, yeah, you can't sue anyone until you get the European patent, and you can't get a European patent until you file that application. The PCT doesn't do it. It's just a placeholder. You need to actually follow through and file that patent application in Europe and then have it granted. Gotcha. Okay, that, that's helpful. Great. Well, we had one other question, which uh, brings me to my next slides. Somebody was asking they could explain more about our free advertising audit opportunity. So here's a QR code right here. If you sign up for a free advertising audit, our account managers will essentially you know, dig into the data within your account. We look for where you're wasting advertising spend. We're looking at where there might be opportunity for higher converting placement. And we're also you know, trying to position you to beat the competition. We pull out all of your targets, all of your keyword targets, all of your ASIN targets, and show you how they're performing in a return on ad spend basis. And we can get really deep into what type of metrics we would change in order to show successful results in the future. So I think it's definitely something that, you know, I've, I've done hundreds of audits over the past few years. I think there's a lot of value to doing that. Even if you're not looking to essentially sign up, I think you'll at least learn something. So. Please reach out if you would like to get a free advertising audit, and we'll connect you with one of our expert account managers to get that, or account managers to get that done. Anyways, I think that is all we have for today. The last thing I wanted to mention is that we have another webinar coming up on June 8th to discuss the game plan for Prime Day. Prime Day is going to be just around the corner. Amazon has not announced it yet, but we're expecting it to be around mid-July. So this will be a great webinar to, to make sure you're fully prepared to take advantage of the Prime Day boost in sales. But otherwise, thank you so much, Rich. Thank you so much, Wassam, for joining us today. I think it was really informative. We've gotten great feedback so far. So really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you.
It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Myonomics, where we break down the strategies on how to sell and scale on Amazon. This content was sponsored by Mayan, a PPC and inventory optimization platform for Amazon sellers. Mayan provides a free advertising audit to show you how well your advertising could be performing. Learn more at try.mayan.co slash audit.